Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership in data science and how you can make better use of this capability. The podcast is aimed at both technical and non-technical people on how they can have a better career and create more impact and value for all of your organizations. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed the show. Today's episode, I speak with Terence Siganakis. He is the CEO of Growing Data. It is Growing Data is a consulting company based in Melbourne, Australia, that they work in data science, data engineering, machine learning, and also strategy and governance in the data space. Terence is a really impressive leader. We have worked together in the past, and I always enjoy having conversations with him about the space. In this particular conversation, we focus on productionizing machine learning models. What are the barriers to doing that? What are the things you should keep in mind and how to do it? It's something where a lot of people get stuck. A lot of the training in data science and a lot of the discussion of data science stops short of getting to the productionizing part. So it's a really important topic and one that uh, Terence knows very well. I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Terence Siganakis on productionizing machine learning models. A lunch Q&A. So we had a few people at the Liberty office. Yeah, it's literally just provide lunch, have a yeah. chat, talk about like, what's in people's minds. Uh, yeah. Joseph came on his last day. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you caught up with Phil. I'm glad it, um, it's a good comment, the stealth mode. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, I think it's going to be a, an interesting thing for growing data over the next 6 to 12 months, trying to work out, actually probably more than the next 6 months, how to, you know, how to promote ourselves effectively how to be having the right conversations and building the right relationships yes. and being out there in the community, doing meetup talks and trying to get some of the team to engage with that as well. We talk a lot about it, but challenge is everyone loves the doing in terms of the work. Yeah. And so it's hard to pull people away from that and to have them spend time writing up presentations or writing up articles or whatever, talking about the thing they did before because they're like, well, that's already done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm bored of this shit. So that represents a, a great challenge. But yeah, so I don't know, we'll see how. So what see how thinking? What's the plan to get... So the first step is for me to be out there more and to do presentation or two, one every couple of months at least, or once a month, even if it's just recycling the same one again and again and again. <laughs> Turn them into content as well, so article-based content, try to get that potentially promoted through Hacker News, Reddit, the Towards Data Science website has a seems to have a pretty big audience, try to do some stuff with that. Meeting with some marketing team tomorrow too to kind of put together a proposal on, on what to do. They seem to be. They seem to think that LinkedIn's a, a good channel. I'm so impressed with LinkedIn. You see how Anorak's is all over it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Noticed a few people in the um with selfies up on with the uh, data analytics. You know, twenty five oh, yeah, leaders. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a self-nomination. Why didn't you throw your hat in the ring? I get so many emails from different organizations saying that Growing Data has been shortlisted for something. And then they say pay us. Yeah, eight grand or yeah. 10 grand or 20 grand. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, uh, you know, what, what like CIO magazine or yeah. whatever it is, like, I don't know what their readership's like. like. They post a bit of content, but I think that the old cold call email, you're awesome, give us give the us money, money, and then we'll tell people that you're awesome. Yeah. I must make them a, a, it's got to be a good business. I really want to be supporting that. And why weren't you? <laughs> 
I'm more I'm more in the business of getting other people to shine. Uh, it's very altruistic yeah. of you. Oh, I think I think just like people with good experience have good knowledge to share and yeah. to impart, and I think that there there needs to be more of that, yeah. especially around the, everything in data science that's non-technical. Everyone is like essentially drinking out of the same trough in terms of like going to a technical side yeah. and doing the videos, the articles, the technical podcast, and talking about increasing accuracy, 0.01% of the yeah. algorithm. And I'm like, to do actual data science, you need so much more than that. Yeah. Just put a spotlight on the rest and find good people. Just pass, yeah. Pass on well, that's why the, the governance stuff, I think, is a, an interesting area because I've got a, a slide in there that, it, you know, governance or good governance is the price of admission into interesting problems. Yeah. And it's true. Like, if you can't get over that hurdle, it doesn't matter whether you're using TensorFlow or PyTorch or SKLearn, none of that matters because you haven't got access to interesting problems or a capacity to actually deliver it. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that interests me. The, um, the other side of it is how these things are, are actually used. And um, you had your the Singapore CDA, CDOA or whatever it is, talk a bit about um, bias and racial and sexist kinds oh, of yeah, yeah, yeah. things. I was interested in, in that, obviously, because there's some really great examples about it, but feedback loops as well. In particular, the, the YouTube radicalization stuff where you start watching a video that's quite innocent and you let the recommender keep driving you before you know it. You're watching KKK videos. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the, I think potential for it had a look. So how did you get to the ML governance? I guess the, the origin of it is this thing that we, we ran into all the time at ANZ back in like many years ago around um, the corporate finance stuff we were doing yeah. with numbers not being right yeah. or someone's perception of the number not being right. And it kind of working on that, le that level of accuracy when it was such a, a complex domain and there are so many different interpretations of what a metric is, it gets you thinking about... What am I doing with my life? Basically, yeah. <laughs> Then you, then you overcome that and realize you have no other options. And, but yeah, realize that different people have different perceptions of what a number means. And so you need to be really clear in terms of what this number actually is. And so therefore, the context becomes really important in terms of how the number is presented. And then you step into, okay, how is the number actually calculated? And how does that differ from the person's expectations? And the more stuff that we do, the more complex the analysis is and the more opportunity there is for either an error to slip in or just for it to be difficult for people to understand and yeah. so that got us thinking a lot about provenance of data and lineage and traceability and all those kinds of things and then as you get into the, the machine learning side of things where you take you're ratcheting up the complexity again and again and again and seeing challenges in market for people being able to actually you know they do this great work on this you know on their laptop or you know using the cloud on a couple of csvs they're like this thing's going to change the world and then they try to deploy it and have all these problems and it just comes from you know actually accessing live data actually having the right infrastructure in place. And then this process of productionization takes forever. And then compounding that the actual thing gets into production 
and it doesn't live up to expectations because people have forgotten all the processing steps that they took or maybe they've somewhere along the lines and they've assessed the accuracy of their thing. They've made errors in their methodology which has led to overfitting and creating an overly generous kind of view of the accuracy of their thing. So the whole governance side of thing talks to a lot of these problems, talks to it in terms of ensuring that machine learning is, oh, what's the word, um, reproducible. Yeah. So ensuring that, that it doesn't just work on your laptop. So you know, adding some discipline around pushing code somewhere else to run, having, you know, incorporating code reviews into the process as early as possible, ensuring that you think about the business outcome and have that doc and the desired outcome documented, have service level objectives documented ahead of time so that you can say at the end of it, okay, was this thing did this thing meet its expectations or not? And so all these kinds of things, I think, feed into a better way of working in the, the data science space that enables better collaboration, that enables more confidence in the output of what's being built. Who, who in the data science value chain, who do you think is yearning for... I think it's the head of data science, the director of data science, the person who's maybe got a team or who wants to build a team and is frustrated with how their inability to, to leverage the amazingness that is data science and turn that into business value. So where you have like executive drivers, process transformation or around being more startup-like or doing ML as a business it's thing. A concept, yeah. just, just, so I think that from that, there's a need for this kind of stuff. It's a little bit challenging in the sense that it's not as sexy as some of the other areas of, of data science. Um, but I think that it's a, if it's done well, it, it becomes something that enables teams to be more productive. Because all the things that you need from a governance perspective that a regulator might be asking for or that you might need to get executive sign-off on risk or, or whatever are all things that actually help the developer experience. That, I agree, but that's not the perception. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Why? Why that is? So, Why is governance a dirty word? Because for developers, I see it as, or data scientists and the creators, the, the practitioners, they see it as more procedure, less flexibility, more process to follow. Some of that's true, but then there are other, everyone wins if your, your models are better documented. It makes the team more effective. It makes it easier for you as a data scientist to pick up someone else's work. But people don't like documenting stuff. Yeah. that much but you need to do it it's absolutely critical but other elements like having you know reproducibility and integrating that into your processing pipeline through CRCD systems so systems that every time code is pushed to a, a repository they go and do something with it they go and build stuff they test it they run training potentially all that kind of stuff and it's all automated and it's all tracked, and that enables you to have confidence that what you're building from day one or day two is going to be production ready when it reaches its its targets. So I think for people who are, there is additional work up front to set up these systems, but once they work really well. And what are you thinking on that front, that you'd be minimizing the work up front? This is part of a, a, I guess, an ongoing, ongoing discussion about the, the way that this kind of stuff should be done. In terms of what growing data can do in terms of its value proposition yeah. is element of that, which is just setting up the infrastructure to enable a team to work more effectively and in a more governed and more easily understood kind of 
environment. And there's, part of that is also tooling and connecting tooling together, so different tools and ensuring that you maximise the good things and you don't create overhead for developers. But I mean, there's always an element of people doing stuff in Jupiter and being really excited about the results there and then wanting that to be in production. And it's like, well, that's not going to happen. So what you can do is you can say, well, look, okay, there's a process here, which is to say, you've done your experimentation here. Let's turn it into just Python scripts. Let's make sure that we have some tests. Let's make sure the code is structured in a way that other people can understand. And then let's, when it's pushed there, we can see how it goes all the way through an automated deployment process. So the idea is that with these systems in place, that you can essentially push your code and from that point on, it's just a question of approving it for it to go into production. So the code just automatically flows through the different steps until it's kind of, you know, there's enough metadata supporting it to say that there was a person who signed off on the initial ticket. There was a code review that happened before it got merged into the master branch. There was automated test unit testing done on the code that works on it. So yeah, the idea is that through automated process, the, the code will just flow through a, a CRCD process that in, includes training and verification and different kinds of tests. And that all gives you confidence that the thing's going to work and that it does work. It'll make it easier for data scientists to see their work out in the real world. That's a frustration, isn't it, for everyone? Like, no one wants to spend three months working on a really difficult problem, come up with a really great solution, and then have nothing happen with it. So what what does your solution look like? Well, it depends on the organization and how much they need to what level of risk tolerance they have, what level of... There's always a trade-off between the amount of risk that you're trying to... What what your risk tolerance is compared with your desire to move fast. So, you know, if you have a very high risk tolerance and you need to move very fast, then your requirements around testing are probably pretty low. But if you're a bank or a financial institution or a pharmaceutical, your risk tolerance is probably pretty high. And so a lot of it comes down to what the audience is for the output, what the impact is for the output. So, you know, if you're assessing credit ratings and you've got a fully automated system, then you need to be considering adversarial examples because someone can game your ML and you're out money. But if you're just kind of trying to decide which cat picture to show a person to maximise likes, then it's not so important. But the idea is that you can use the same kinds of delivery tooling that you already use for software-based processes and unit testing and integration testing and all that, all those kinds of things, and bring that to data science. And so that you're assessing a a model on more than just cross-validation scores or area under the curve. So how does that work? How does unit test work? Oh, so the same as it would for any code project. So it's just all the little helper methods and functions that you have that do little bits and pieces that you test them independently and make sure that they do what people are expecting. And so it's ML is software engineer. So the, the unit testing thing is just like a, is the best practice to ensure that you don't enable regressions to sneak in or when someone's refactoring something, they don't break something else. So that aspect of it, I think, is relatively straightforward. What's, what I think is more interesting is looking at it from a like integration testing perspective around the ML. So if you have essentially some API endpoint that takes some data in and produces a prediction based on it, thinking about all the different ways that you can break that API endpoint 
point. So what are the things that you can do to potentially leak information? What are the things that you can do to test whether or not there are biases in the data set? What are all the things that you can do to test what is the logical outcome of feedback loops, so feeding the data based on the algorithm's predictions back into it and seeing how that kind of plays out. It's a huge problem space to be tackling. How are you going about it? Incrementally. Little process improvements. So you um, look at the way that an organization is operating and yes, look at how they already, they do deploy stuff, how do they deploy it, what are their existing processes, how can you leverage infrastructure they already have, be it a CICD system or built servers or, or you know, their own cloud infrastructure to essentially add more steps into the deployment process that uh, involve testing and training of, of models. This is a thing too, like it's, I mean, it's difficult to have a, a one-size-fits-all yeah. kind of solution because companies and organizations already have a lot of investment in infrastructure, and, and that investment is not just licensing and seats and all that kind of stuff, but the knowledge of the organization, the workarounds, the way an organization uses their software. So you really kind of want to work, I guess, within that while introducing bits of tooling where it makes sense. So you see it as, as being a, a bespoke, every time bespoke, unless it's a clean slate. So maybe not bespoke, but customized. So using the, the same ideas brought together, abstracting out from what tooling or what specific versions or specific things people use and kind of coming up with an abstraction for that. So instead of talking about BigQuery or Snowflake or Redshift, you just talk about the idea of a data warehouse and say that this is its role in the solution. CICD system is this, this is its role, whether it's you know GitLab or Bamboo or Jenkins or whatever, they all do basically the same stuff. You know, you, so you can use the same kind of, you can be thinking about solutions in the same way, but just with different Lego pieces that you plug in. Of course, the, they don't all fit together so well, but that's where the implementation work kind of comes from. And then in that scenario, would your work be the implementation piece? Yes, design and implementation. Okay. So sometimes we do work that is purely kind of design, but for the most part, we like looking at the, the whole kind of solution being there to see the whole thing work as well. So I think even like a lot of organizations do have a huge amount of logic stored up in, in SQL scripts that yeah. all store procedures in databases and it's just a matter of run, 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 run. So there's no version control. Yeah. So even just getting to the point where for these organizations that moving them up that maturity curve to the yeah. point where they can deploy a specific version of their pipeline essentially is a massive step. So the maturity of organizations from a, a data best practices perspective is often not at the level you would expect from them given their success. So yes. Given their success, correct. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah, it's crazy. Can't name names, but <laughs> Right, we just edited them out. <laughs> Excellent. We've had a lot of cases where we've had to replace names yeah. in an interview with organization. So at the organization. <laughs> so as long as Excellent. you say the organization, yeah. we just take that and put it everywhere. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So well-oiled machine. Or client side. That's the benefit of having a good editor. Yeah, every engagement is, is kind of different. What do you walk into the engagement with? It depends. I mean, it's always, uh, the most important thing is walking with an open mind, trying to understand their problem. 
but usually you'll have some indication of that ahead of time, um, in, 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 like whether it's a calls or emails ahead of time. And then really about trying to understand it a little bit more and then trying to distill where they're coming from into something that's kind that you can build that kind of talks to a solution. So the whole proof of concept kind of thing or demonstration of how something might improve or to talk about you know, looking for an, an architecture or something, looking at some reference architectures that you've kind of built previously that you think work and that kind of stuff can be useful to at least have a, a talking point. So it's not, it's not that for the governance piece, it's not that you would walk in with a, with a platform to help them? Not. So we've got a uh, like a demo platform that we use to kind of talk to some of this stuff, but the actual you know, the implementation of stuff is still pretty young for us. So we've got some tooling that, that we think works pretty well and that we use internally. And the question is, you don't want to walk in into an engagement straight off and off the bat be selling a product because that's not really what people want. They want their, their problems to be solved. They want their understanding of the problem domain to be increased. They want to learn from the engagement. So you don't want them anchored on a product-based solution and you don't want to anchor yourself on that. That's good, man. What else is in your plan of how to get this out there? The governance side of thing is one thing that I think is, this is really, really good. Governance, I think, is interesting, but the other side that brings it in is this whole, um, the way organizations interact with data and kind of, you know, what's the next thing after dashboards? I mean, back in the day, you know, it was all about crystal reports and PDF-based reports with charts. <laughs> then it moved to dashboarding and, and now, you know, the dashboarding products are, are really, really good. You look at Power BI these days or Looker, they're great. Still get people to log into them and that is a difficult thing because the whole idea of dashboards and reports has a, a really fundamental problem in terms of a lack of context it's a page with a ton of numbers and some pretty lines and charts and somehow you have to you as the business user has to relate that number back to a thing that you're working on and there's a number of jumps that need to be made and it's not clear and it's not easy for people so we're more interested in is looking at how we embed analytics into workflows to really ensure that the number is there when people need it and it's contextualized by the fact that they're in a workflow. And then looking at ways that you can use machine learning to optimize those workflows as well. So to be kind of watching to see what people inputting into different fields on a page and try to predict that based off other information that you have. As like a pathway to process automation where you can actually take an entire workflow flow and automate it or at least automate key parts of it. So that's an area that I think is really interesting. And then having notifications drive entry into workflows as well. So that kind of, it changes the way that how rapidly businesses can respond to new stuff happening or customer complaints or, or whatever. So does that mean that business users would be spending most of their time on a single platform or product? And would that be your product in this case? How does it work? At the moment, so we've built infrastructure to support that kind of stuff. A tool we have like, internally called Hypermodel. It, it enables you to you know, rapidly build React-based applications that are powered by data and can process data via 
SQL and all that kind of stuff and expose it via APIs in a way that enables rapid prototyping. That's useful for us in terms of building stuff for clients quickly and iterating quickly because it's very developer friendly. The question of how you would deploy something like that across a large organization is of course much more challenging. There's the integration points are obviously a big issue and I've been doing some thinking too about how we can kind of inject analytics into existing workflows and stuff that we don't actually control. So certainly there's some work that we've played with previously around um, using browser extensions to actually manipulate the page that's on it and inject in analytics or to look for ways that the process can be optimized while still in another application. So you could optimize the way you use Dynamics CRM or whatever ERP system. That Any system that's browser-based is kind of the lowest common denominator for essentially some element of UI automation. And to have that UI automation be powered via APIs and machine learning, I think is a really interesting space to be playing in. Yeah. There's a lot of really terrible business process UIs that people uh, have to work with. And if you can find a way to, to reduce that pain, then I think you're doing a, a service for the world. It's a good idea to go with the browser. Mm. I've written tons of them before for different things. It's just that as long as you have control of, or yeah, you can do anything with it, provided that your enterprise security policies enable the addition of browser extensions. But yeah, otherwise you could roll them out with a with a VM, mm. like if they're approved and then yeah, yeah or you, refresh every night or whatever. You write a um an electron based app that is just a browser that you can use as the primary way to do whatever. Yeah. So lots of different ways that you can do it. But um last time I was in hospital which was recently unfortunately they had a new EMR, like electronic mm. medical records that were browser based. And I was like, what the fuck? Welcome yeah. to the 21st century. Oh, it's um the health industry is so interesting at the moment. The EMR stuff is gonna change the face of healthcare. And not just from a patient care perspective, but all the really challenging back office stuff that happens in hospitals. If it can be that can be automated. And we're doing a, a project with um, Chiang Mai University Hospital at the moment around prediction of diagnostic codes, not for the purpose of finding out what's wrong with the person, but for the billing purpose, so that they can, most hospitals these days, or at least in the Western world, do a, a, a finance through activity-based financing, so or activity-based funding, where essentially the government pays the hospital for each particular service and it's all rolled up. And one of the things they have to do at the moment is clinical coders who review all the patient notes and lab results and pharmaceuticals that were prescribed and all that kind of information and distill it into five or ten different codes and then a series of another codes that determine what was actually done in response to those diagnoses. By hand? Oh, they've got, it's, there are some tools to do it, but depending on the hospital, yeah, it's done. Yeah, and then that all those codes are packaged up into a into files on a monthly basis and sent to the government. The government then has to go and look at them and make sure that they're right, or at least for some definition of right. They all get packaged up and the government sends back a check. And then every now and then it has to be audited. And it's a huge amount, it's a, it's a huge problem because it's at a particular regional hospital that has four full-time clinical coders in it. You know, it's a big hospital. But they, when they were audited, 
found out that they had basically left $8 million on the table in terms of if they'd coded these things differently or in a in an approved manner, then the hospital would have received another $8 million in funding. And there are hospitals that are, that are 10 times or 20 times bigger than that. And you can imagine what kind of money they're leaving on the table. Plus, you know, the mistakes would be happening in the other, potentially in the other direction too. Yeah. And you think about how much money that means that the government or health insurers have to deal with as well. So huge opportunities in industries like that as well. So that is insane, man. Yeah. So in, in that scenario, what what are you guys doing? Verifying the we're, coding? We're building models. We're doing the data science thing, trying to optimize for different metrics of accuracy. But the goal is to build decision support software that learns from the actual daily interactions and optimizes the process to the point where the clinical coder is doing more of an approvals-based process rather than actual analysis. So optimizing that process from a user experience perspective so that they have the right bits of information right where they need them to make the trickier calls and where things are more obvious they don't need to invest as much time and effort into. But it's a very slowly moving industry and an industry that has a lot of checks and balances. So again, this is where the governance side of things is absolutely critical because you need to be going into engagements like that where you're the expert in how these things are generally governed and what the best practices are and that you're offering more in terms of controls than they're expecting. So that you're driving the conversation so that you know the answer to the questions. So again, that's another reason why the governance stuff is important to us as a, an organization because we need to enable our customers to live a value and they can't live a value if they can't get the project started. Yeah, well, that's a good way to think about it. You know the answers of the questions to the mm. questions that they have, have the answers that they're yeah. looking for. And this whole thing of treating machine learning like a black box, just saying, oh, this is the model, this is what it does. It's just, it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate for really hard problems or for, for problems that are really meaningful, I should say. So where you're doing stuff that involves finances and involves important decisions being made, you've got to understand how it all works and have a robust process for dealing with problems when they arise. So a process for dealing with incident reports and doing root cause analysis on problems once they're identified and feeding that back into your process. And it all speaks to the fact that your method of operating is at the best practice level and that you know what you're doing. Where are you starting when solving this problem? On the phase that this project's at currently, it's a research project. It's an academic project. So, you know, the, our data scientists will, will publish papers on it, essentially, as we go. So it's at the moment, it's very much uh, more science than data science, I guess. But that's really, from our perspective, important to build up credibility and important to build up a peer-reviewed process to show that the stuff that we're doing that we claim it's doing, it actually does. And important then for us to learn too from that kind of peer review process, the areas that we may have gotten stuff wrong in. So that's kind of where it's at now. And to hopefully leverage success we have in that in terms of doing workshops with hospitals and people that we know are interested in it already, do a few pilots, get people interested, wait six to 12 months for approvals to be sought and got, and then have at it again. It's a big one, but it's gonna be a slow one. So it's interesting because it's meaningful, the kind of thing that potentially save hundreds of millions of dollars across even just the Victorian health system. What that means is that that's hundreds of millions of dollars going into doctors and nurses and patient care, not money that's saved from the bureaucracy. It's exciting. Of course, it means 
these guys aren't billing, so so it's a significant investment as an organisation. But you got to back yourself sometimes, and you know that you can solve problems that big. What other areas are you working on at the moment? What um, about? Yeah, that's probably the most of it. So working, working in finance, working in yeah. banking, working in pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So um, fair bit. You don't, don't want to spread ourselves too thin. But um, yeah, finance and health are our key things. Do a little bit of work um, in construction as well, which is really interesting to mix it up a little bit. But is that when you work on the strategy? Yeah, strategic stuff, yeah. So kind of how do you take a, an organization that is doesn't have or hasn't invested in its systems over a long period of time and how do you jumpstart it into a, a cloud-based, really data-savvy organization? The organization actually uses data quite effectively and they, they generate tons of reports and they talk about like their data literacy is actually really high but their systems that support it just have suffered from a, a lack of investment. So talking about 90s level data infrastructure and then kind of how do you jumpstart that into a, a much more mature kind of cloud-based data platform. And you also have these crazy challenges around um, data access that are, that are not the normal ones around politics and governance and risk and all that kind of stuff. But they're actually like, what is this file format? Yeah. <laughs> Never seen this before. <laughs> yeah, there are no connectors or whatever because the systems are antiquated. How do you get an organization like that to live for 30 years? It's hard. There's got to be a driver for it. There's got to be a pain. The key thing, and the other side of it is, is that it's, you're alleviating that pain, but you're also creating capability for the future. And so it's not about building for the current requirements. It's like, okay, what are the strategic drivers of the organization and how can data support that? And that becomes a, a real pillar or data becomes a real pillar for the, the, strategy, the strategic implementation because it enables faster response and better decision making and better use of, of resources. And so, you know, the technology and data science and machine learning are, are changing the world and they're changing the world in a way that leaves incumbents exposed. The innovation is primarily coming out of, of startups, startups that aren't, that don't have, they flaunt the regulatory arrangements and they don't have the legacy systems and so they can move really, really quickly. And they don't have as much to lose. They don't have the brand. They don't have the reputation. So there's a lot of fear in large established organizations that elements of their business are going to be completely taken over by startups. And so a big part of it is creating the infrastructure that enables these larger organizations to respond to those threats and to do the innovation themselves. And so a big driver of that comes back to um, customer experience and changing needs of the customer and the impact that that has on incumbent organizations. So you look at Afterpay or you look at Uber and taxis or you look at any number of examples. They're tech platforms, but their value is really the improved customer experience and they use data to drive that. So you know, incumbent organizations have a ton of data. And, you know, so they have that as an advantage over startups. They don't leverage it as effectively. And that's kind of where we try to help. Do you think of incumbent organizations are prepared for the amount of work that it takes to drive innovation? Or do you think they're closer to the other end? Yeah. And yeah, there's the, the classic kind of the low risk approach, which is we'll set up an innovation lab and we'll add some brightly colored couches and some TVs and we'll buy a couple of VR headsets and pay a couple of expensive people to, to play around all day. That's fun, but it doesn't work. <laughs> so the, the, the key is the, the culture needs to adapt 
to that kind of innovation mindset. And part of innovation is at the executive level, it involves a change of risk management involves taking more risks. And that's a really hard thing to do. Especially when you look at executives that are really well compensated and you're then asking them to take on risk that can potentially lead to jail time. And so you go from this you know, person who's in the top 0.01% of income earners and you're saying, okay, we want you to take this risk so you can get a slightly bigger bonus, but the downside is you might end up in jail. If it all goes wrong, would you like to do this thing? Not really, no. <laughs> and so part of it is, this is part of the governance discussion too, part of it is saying, well, the governance gives the executive the greater confidence that the system is not going to do something that's going to land up, or end up with him being in jail, or it enables a discussion with the regulator or the whoever to say, well, look, this is what we're going to do. This is our governing procedure. We'll do this. Do you guys think this is appropriate, engage in that dialogue, and then potentially to be looking at where the risk management or the, the executive's role in owning the risk is owning the risk of the process not being adhered to rather than the outcome of the process. So it's a really powerful aspect of the value of governance in terms of actually affecting change. Yeah. So it definitely lowers the barriers to innovation. There's still a little work to take innovation and spread it through the organization, which from the executive mindset, that's the stock price changing effort where the risk is that it goes in the negative direction for them and bonuses get severely, severely affected. And this is the, there's two elements to it. One is how do you drive that change internally? And, and it's got to be through success building on success building on success. So finding low hanging fruit, doing a thing, doing it really well, promoting the crap out of it internally, making sure that everyone knows that this thing has been done and that it's great. And the next thing that you're working on is the thing that you're trying to get approval for, but you're trying to build support for and doing it project by project by project and affecting that kind of groundswell of actual innovation happening and people therefore being able to counteract the belief that I don't we don't really innovate here because yeah. stuff's been... Because there's a, a track record of ideas being shot down or ideas not being executed or projects dying. So you've got to start small and build momentum. And that's also how you get the executive kind of buy-in as well and how you mitigate the risk for the executive by showing that you can deliver and that you have a plan for delivery and you have controls in how it's going to be delivered and you have points at which you'll kill the project if it's not delivering against what you say and all these kinds of things that really come back to planning and, and strategy and and that kind of stuff. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands, growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US. Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, 
head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.